Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series welcomes a very special guest to help us better understand the current state of affairs surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. We are honored to have Dr. Peter Hotez join us for today's episode. In case you have not seen or heard Dr. Hotez lately, he has become one of the world's foremost experts on the COVID-19 pandemic, and in particular, regarding how we communicate information to the general public. Dr. Hotez is the Dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor in the Departments of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. I could spend the entire episode discussing Dr. Hotez's accolades and research accomplishments surrounding vaccine development and delivery. We have a lot to cover in our limited time together. Suffice it to say, we have the perfect guest to discuss today's topic. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and welcome to the show. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thanks so much. And I can't tell you how many students I advise to go in, medical students, to go into allergy and immunology. We need more. It's a, such an important field and such an interesting field. Oh, well, thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> well, I almost could... did it myself because I'm interested in vaccines and then went for the infectious disease route, but I could have easily gone into allergy and immunology. Uh, as you know, there's so much overlap and we always really enjoy, uh, well, we hope not to share patients with you, but whenever we do, it's always leads to fascinating conversations. You've been extensively involved in communicating various aspects of the pandemic to the general public and are a regular guest on national and global networks. Did you do a lot of these appearances prior to the pandemic or is this really a new avenue for you? Well, I've done some in the past. Um, you know, I, I, I often joke uh, in the past, whenever you see me uh, for a series of nights on TV, you know something bad is happening. So, you know, I'd be out there around H1N1 pandemic flu back in 2009 and and then over the boat when Ebola uh, emerged in Dallas, Texas, there I was again, and then Zika in 2016. But of course, this has taken it to a whole new level in this last year and a half. Oh, well, maybe in the future, we can just have you on just to talk about life in general, perhaps when things have calmed that, down. <laughs> that, that, that would be good. You know, it's an interesting life I've had as a vaccine scientist and doing pediatric infectious disease and developing vaccines, but also keeping that foot firmly planted in public engagement. And um, and I do think the science, being a scientist, also does reinforce it. Um, they are kind of parallel activities. I find both meaningful. And in my own mind, they reinforce each other. But um, it's in times like this, when we're trying to accelerate our vac COVID vaccine in India and Indonesia and elsewhere, being on Zoom calls early in the morning, late at night with Asia, and then doing early morning, late at night on on the cable news channels. It's It's been quite incredible for the last 18 months. Oh my gosh, I, I can only imagine. Where do you think your passion comes from in regards to not only the current pandemic, but just infectious disease in general? Actually, I knew I wanted to study parasitic and tropical diseases ever since I was a kid, uh, believe it or not. That's, I'll 
you know, reading, read, like many listening to this, read micro punters as a kid and was fascinated with maps and the confluence of it became tropical diseases. So I even went to Yale as an undergraduate to work in a lab on African sleeping sickness and with Curtis Patton and Frank Richards, and then did my MD PhD at Rockefeller and Cornell because, well, Cornell, because they gave me the opportunity to really, uh, they were at that time, they were just starting to clone genes and uh, it was a brand new science of molecular biology in the early 80s. And I wanted to apply it to the study of parasites. So that part I've known I've wanted to do since forever. Um, I think the, the more late adult uh, onset affectation is the public engagement. And that also is an interesting story. So I became microbiology chair at George Washington. I was in pediatric infectious disease at Yale, took over a basic science department. And being in Washington, you know, at that time in the early 2000s, being in Rome at the height of the Roman Empire, uh, I thought this was an opportunity to do some big picture things in policy. And and at that time, the Millennium Development Goals came out and all the diseases that I was interested in, like schistosomiasis and hookworm and Chagas disease were labeled other diseases. And I said, this isn't going to go anywhere. So I actually began lobbying, not lobbying, but speaking to members of Congress and the White House with colleagues from the UK to advocate for this concept of neglected tropical diseases. And that's when I realized I, I had a voice that was effective and and I loved it. And, uh, and I love doing both. And it's been that way ever since. And then the next generation of that was when I wrote the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, about my youngest daughter. And and became kind of public enemy number one with the anti-vaccine groups. They started calling me the OG villain, which I had to look up the original gangster villain. So, <laughs> so Dave, you've, you've invited the original gangster villain onto this podcast here. And I thought that in itself was quite interesting. So I started writing about, you know, advocating for vaccines and what it meant to go up against anti-science groups. And of course, this thing has blown up entirely in the last year. No, absolutely. Uh, and you've had a front row seat to, to really a changing sort of um, paradigm of how, of how people receive their information and all the misinformation. And just I'd love to hear your comments on what's happened in recent years that has led to just an increasingly widespread distrust of science and medical experts in general. I mean, you're, you're living this every day. Well, I wrote this article that I really enjoyed writing for the Journal of Clinical Investigation on the history of anti-vaccine, anti-science movements in the U.S. And, you know, this whole story of health freedom, medical freedom, where did that come from? It turns out there was always an ebb and flow of it ever since the time of Andrew Jackson. And Benjamin Rush, for instance, was a very ardent champion of this concept of health freedom, medical freedom. And he actually resisted um, qualification certification for physicians. Uh, and But I think the game changer, of course, is Back then, there was nothing called the internet and, and social media, and that, that's had a huge amplifying effect. And now you're seeing you know, the Health and Human, Department of Health and Human Services and the Surgeon General sort of going after Facebook and other social media platforms. And I understand that, but one of the things I say is you know, that's the vehicle, and it's important, but nobody really likes to talk about the sources of the disinformation. And I think this is the one thing that I've been writing about all year is it just, it's not coming from mom and pop group groups, grassroots groups. These are 
well-organized, well-funded entities. And there's, and they for, they're going to three major buckets. In fact, I wrote a, a piece for the Daily Beast called The Triple-Headed Monster. And one of them is the the Center for Countering Digital Hate. It's amazing you have to have an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate identifies 12 non-governmental groups that are putting out 65% of the anti-vaccine information. They call them the disinformation dozen. And I think that's very important. But they stop there. What, what I take it is one step further and say, look, we just cannot ex- ignore the partisan divide that's happened in this country. And the, va- the low vaccination rates clearly reflect conservative Republican strongholds. And that's the part as academics or as or as physicians or physician scientists, nobody's very comfortable talking about and, and neither neither am I, right? As all of our medical and scientific training says you're not supposed to talk about Republicans and Democrats and liberals and or conservatives. That's we're supposed to be above it. But you know, I what I've said is look, it's not that I'm tying this to politics. The bad guys have tied, have adopted anti-science as part of the political platform on the right. And it's up to us to disentangle it. And that's a very hard conversation to have. Um, So, but that's the second piece. I think, you know, what we saw at the CPAC conference, what we're seeing play out on some of the conservative news channels at night, it's, it's pretty awful. And that's doing a lot of damage. Then the third one, which um, I tend to be a lone, lone out, loner out there talking about it is the Russian government. You know, we now have information from U.S. and British intelligence and other sources that Putin has been using this as anti-science, anti-vaccine activities as a wedge issue to further divide our country. So a lot of the stuff is coming from Russian bots and trolls and uh, like Russia Today and, and Sputnik News, and that's also doing a lot of damage. And that's the part that the Biden administration doesn't want to take on is to actually start to to dismantle the the monster, the take down the the sources of anti-vaccine disinformation. So that's still going to take time. Yeah, well, I mean, you've really outlined how complicated complicated all of this is, and I know as clinicians, and, and it's and it's not small potatoes, right? These mm-hmm. again, it's not some you know mom who thinks vaccines cause autism like it used to be. These yeah. are well-organized, well-funded entities. They monetize the internet through advertising. They're they're selling fake books. I mean, if you go to Amazon.com and look at the books on vaccinations, it's a horror show, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, your patients, you know, people listening to this, your patients come in with all this stuff and you're like, what? I never heard that. And, you know, they make you feel like you're not keeping up with the literature. Well, you, you're keeping up with the literature and your board certification, but you're not keeping up with the fake stuff. And <sighs> and that's what they're coming in loaded with bear with this fake information. It's very tough. Oh, absolutely. And I, I know I personally love when I get that chance to have the individual conversation with somebody because then you can take a deeper dive into what's really, you know, leading to their their mistrust of evidence-based right. information and whatnot. So let's let's dive into some of the details surrounding this virus. Uh, can you just give us some background at first as to why viruses mutate in general uh, and what occurs when they do? Well, they, they mutate when they're allowed to replicate um especially RNA viruses. RNA viruses tend to mutate at pretty, you know, significant rates. And and that's what we're seeing with, with this one. Um, and I think, again, that's another fake talking point because one of the big uh, fake talking points that's out there, even from scientists that they've co-opted, is to say, well, that's vaccinations that are driving 
the evolution of the mutations. And it sounds good, right? But it's mm-hmm. not true, right? So the, the UK variant, the B117 variant, arose out of unvaccinated unvaccinated England, right? It started in September, October last year. Uh, the Delta variant was because India was unvaccinated and the virus was allowed to propagate. And, and those are the sources of of the major mutations, which of course is a wake-up call of why we've got to do a better job vaccinating uh, um, the world's low and middle-income countries. I mean, the African continent, for all practical purposes, is unvaccinated, and and that's only asking for trouble. And that's why we're trying to accelerate our low-cost recombinant protein COVID vaccine that's now being scaled for production in India and Indonesia and, and, and elsewhere. And so we're very excited about that. Mm. Oh, and right now, of course, the hot topic is the Delta variant um, of the the SARS-CoV-2 virus. What have we learned about how this specific variant, um, how it differs from the original variant or, or ones that pre, you know, came before it in regards to binding, replication, or or how it's really changing uh, infections overall? Well, I think you know the a key part of of this virus is that it's much more efficient at replicating in in human tissues. And some ascribe that to a specific amino acid substitution in the 681 of what's called the furin cleavage site, which is needed for virus entry into the cell. And and that simple switch to an, an arginine may be responsible for a lot of those changes. So the point is you're getting a lot more virus replication uh, in nasal secretions, in in saliva, and I think that has a lot to do with it. So uh, about a, a six weeks ago, a study in Guangdong province said when you're doing PCR for virus, um, the cycle threshold was way lower and meaning much more virus. And I think that has a lot to do with what we're seeing and why the reproductive number of the virus, the level of virus transmission is so sky high. It's not quite measles level, but it's it's getting much higher than anything we've seen before. And the consequence of that is, and and if you get big big areas or pockets of low vaccination, this virus just gains a lot of force of infection and infects a lot of people very quickly. And that's what you're seeing right now uh, across the South. And because we've done a pretty good job vaccinating older Americans over the age of 65, even in the South where vaccination rates are lower, those over the age of 65 still have about 80, 85% vaccination rates, not as high as the North, but still good. But when you look at young people in the Southern US, nobody's vaccinated. I mean, 25% of adolescents, uh, maybe slightly higher for um, young adults. And that's what's that's what's the game changer here. And so Delta's just ripping through everything from Texas to Florida and everything in between. After similar surges in India and the United Kingdom with the Delta variant, it seemed like some of those, um, the rate of infection dropped off rather precipitously, uh, relatively speaking, at least. Is it possible that we're going to see something similar in the United States this autumn as well? And uh, why or why not? Well, that would be great, wouldn't it? But the, yeah. the problem is the problem is this. When you look at the the, the UK curve, for instance, in the, in the United Kingdom, you know, it started at 5,000 new cases a day, and then it shot up to 40,000 new cases a day with Delta. And then it started coming down, and people said, okay, well, this is going to have this natural peak, and then it'll stop. But then it got stuck at 20,000, and that's what it's been. So it's And now it's plateaued. And, and I would guess you could see this in the U.S. as well, particularly because it coincides now with the opening of schools. So 
as we're speaking, um, the Houston Independent School District is opening up for in-person classes just now. So with all of this virus transmission, now you're opening up schools. And in many school districts across the South, you've heard it on the news, many of the uh, elected leaders and, and public officials are saying no to mask mandates. And and we have so few vaccinated among the adolescents. So I think this will have a yet another amplifying effect for, for a while to come. So I think this is going to be with us a good chunk of the fall. Mm. Yeah, that's it's scary to think about. Uh, what impact have COVID- Well, it's vaccine- scary to think about because also because it was a self-inflicted wound. I mean, wow. you know, had we- fully vaccinated the American people, I, you know, like, like we see up in Vermont, right. Where essentially all of or Massachusetts or Connecticut, where all the, the adolescents and adults are vaccinated practically. That's, that's the difference between the North and the South is, uh, uh, is, is that, that difference. There's, there's still going to be issues and problems, but nothing like what we're going to see down here, I would think. It also depends on how much waning immunity is really a problem. And, also, how quickly we can get those third immunizations into people that will also affect things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna, I know, definitely want to get back to that in just a second, but I would love to hear you tell our listeners um, what impact the COVID vaccines have had on the trajectory of the pandemic, and really, where do we stand right now in regards to who's at highest risk for severe illness? Well, you know, we were on a good trajectory going into March and April and May, and then everything stopped. Um, so I think the biggest impact so far is we've done well vaccinating those 65 and older. So the deaths won't go as high. Um, we, won't, we won't get the 3,000 deaths per day like we had in January. But we're still now we're at 1,000 deaths per day. Um, so, you know, I think this narrative that uh, all, that is exclusively those over the age of 65 who lose, lose their lives from COVID, we know that's not true. And so we're seeing a lot of younger people going into hospitals, into intensive care units, and unfortunately losing their lives. So a thousand deaths per day, if you told us that, you know, a year ago, we'd say, oh my God, a thousand deaths per day. And that's, that's where we're at again. So I think in terms of the trajectory, what we're seeing are marked regional differences. Northeast is looking pretty strong, parts of the West Coast, but then you go into the South and then now creeping up into, uh, the Ohio River Valley, and then going west across Texas. It's looking pretty dire right now. And then I think as we head into the colder weather in the fall, we might see um, this going to the Mountain West states, you know, Wyoming in a bigger way, Idaho. They're very vulnerable. Also, you know, conservative stronghold states, low vaccination rates. That's where I see that heading in the fall. I find it fascinating. I could speak with you every week, and I'm sure our talking points and discussion points would change dramatically. I just really find that fascinating as this this pandemic has evolved over time. Um, you know, the conversation we have today would have been very different in May. Um, any predictions if we were to dust off the Peter Hotez crystal ball for what talking points we may be faced with come November or December? Well, I'm hoping we'll get closer to full vaccination. And, you know, in theory, we can still vaccinate our way out of this if we can just overcome the the, the staunch opposition uh, to vaccination. And and you're right. Keeping up with this has been really tough. And, and you know, and, and it's not and one of the things that I do people that and that we all do is I'm talking to colleagues. You, you, you can't get it all from preprint servers and published papers. So one of the things that I do, which I really love, is every 
Friday, I we do a, I do an informal Zoom call with Mike Osterholm and Stephen Hahn for the FDA. We've been talking to all year. People like Peggy Hamburg and Benny Heaton from the Gates Foundation, and uh, I just learned uh, and Eric Topol, who's amazing at, at Scripps. So I learned so much from them, and and we all have different passions, and we all emphasize different things, and and that that I find really helpful. And we've been doing other calls like that as well. So it's just keeping up with the deluge of information is, is, is really tough. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that our listeners find it comforting that some of our greatest minds are communicating with each other uh, on a regular basis. No, no, it, it's really tough to, and you just, and there's not one-stop shopping for, mm-hmm. for all your information. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a bit all over the map. The good news is the scientific community, I think, has been really good about sharing information. You know, there and all the stuff going up on preprint servers like MedArchive, BioArchive. We haven't really done that in the past to this extent. And also the journal editors, I think, have done a really good job, you know, especially the flagship journals like Lancet and Plus and and New England Journal and uh, JAMA, JCI. They've done a really good job getting this stuff out there in a rapid manner without compromising integrity. So I think, you know, there are some silver linings of this pandemic. And among them is the, I think the way the scientific communities responded and the journal editors and, and the scientific science journalists really trying to get it right and getting the information out there is in, you know, and trying to thread that needle of being fast and yet not losing accuracy. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I thought you were going to say zoom was a silver lining of all this. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if I, honest to God, if I never did another Zoom call again, I'd be the, ha- I used to say, if I never saw the inside of Nearport again, I'd be the happiest man in the world. And now it's, I never did another Zoom call. Oh my uh, goodness. Nothing against Zoom, by the way, it's just, you know, it's exhausting. And, uh, yes. you know, I've, you know, there's been more than a few times where I just, you know, I just can't do this. Now. I just got to walk away and go outside and take a walk. Or I'm sure all of you, everybody listening has had that experience. It's, there's just so many hours you can f- sit in front of a freaking Zoom call. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, I we happen to have this scheduled on the same day that just a few hours before uh, we got together to record this, the FDA gave full authorization to the Pfizer vaccine. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about what impact this will have on current efforts to provide vaccines to as many people as possible. Is this a game changer or, or how does this change anything? I think it does change things, but not always in the way that people think. So, you know, the questions that are being asked by the journalists is, isn't this great? Because now everyone has been holding back getting vaccinated. Now they're going to get vaccinated because it's approved because they've been saying they don't trust the emergency use authorization process. And then I have to take the wind out of their sails and say, well, I think there'll be some people who will do that, but I think it's going to be modest because, you know, what's happened is the disinformation empire puts out about a dozen talking points. One of them is EUA is a fraudulent process or a corrupted process and um, but I think you know people will just fall back on the other stuff. But so that's the not so good news. The, I think what the game changer may be around mandates. I think because now um, employers can feel comfortable mandating more comfortable mandating vaccines. So I've been talking to a lot of general counsels of companies over the years, and and they just didn't feel comfortable doing this through EUA, even though legally I think they could have, but they didn't want to. Um, and so, so I think places of business now will feel more comfortable doing this. If the federal government 
you know, the military is now going to mandate uh, vaccinations. I think other federal agencies, and I think that's that's going to be the biggest impact. So because you know we've got a big gap to close, we've still got about 80, 85 million Americans who are unvaccinated who are eligible. So I'm hoping that the mandates maybe will cut that in half to 40 million, but then you're still going to have that same 40 million dug in and watching the conservative news channels at night and mm-hmm. and just just believing in the in the disinformation in some cases conspiracy so that's going to be the hard part i think the one there was a piece i was disappointed about which i was hoping this would be approved for 12 and up and mm-hmm. they stopped it at 16 and up and and i think we're going to have especially for the pediatric allergists i think they're going to have a tough time now because you know, parents are going to say, well, why didn't they approve it for the 12-year-olds? Is there a problem? And and explaining that, no, they started later. We still need more data. That's going to be, that's going to be tough. To, so I worry about, you know, we had an opportunity, I think, to uh, improve compliance among the adolescents. They were still the lowest, you know, in terms of uptake, uptake of the vaccines. And it also, of course, means we can't mandate vaccines for the middle schools and and maybe the high schools, but not the middle schools. Mm-hmm. It, you know, our specialty has been really at the forefront of uh, dealing with reported anaphylactic and systemic allergic reactions to the vaccines. And, and thankfully, we, we know that uh, we can get almost everybody vaccinated, regardless of their history of allergies uh, with the different versions that are available. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, all these medical exemptions. Are there actual absolute mm-hmm. medical exemptions where somebody can't receive one of the available COVID vaccines? I, yeah, I suppose of a previous history of anaphylaxis. Um, Maybe a history of peg allergy, right? Because there is peg and polyethylene glycol in some of the vaccine preparations. But how many people, how many patients do people have with peg allergy? So really, very few uh, that 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 I can think of. So there's not many um, true medical exemptions that I could think of. Yeah. Well, let's go back to what you mentioned before about the new recommendations for a third dose of the COVID vaccine. Can you explain to us you know, what this means? Does this mean that the vaccines aren't working? Uh, who should receive a third dose? What's some of the immunology behind it? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, um, so I think of it this way. You know, when, when the vaccines were released for emergency use, they came out with a, for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine with a three-week interval between first and second dose, a four-week interval for the Moderna vaccine. And if you think about it, we don't really do that for vaccines, right? We, you know, you, you have a long interval in order to give a boost, right? Which increases memory B and T cells and gives you more long lasting durable antibodies. So we did it, of course, at that three and four week interval in order to save lives. We needed to get people fully vaccinated. Remember, we we're losing 3000 Americans a day. We needed to, in the nursing home, to get get people with those two doses as fast as possible or the healthcare workers. And it worked. I think it saved a lot of lives, but I think it came with a trade-off knowing that we would see declines in antibody titers. We didn't know for sure because it was a new mRNA technology, but, you know, looking at other vaccines, I mean, look at what we do for our diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine or an activated polio vaccine or haemophilus influenza type B. We give a series of rapid immunizations, maybe, you know, eight weeks apart, and then we wait and then we give a big boost, you know, a boost maybe a year later. And 
and that's how you maximize durability and an amplitude of protection. So when I saw that schedule, I said, mm, you know, we're probably going to need a third immunization and we're going to see waning immunity. At the time, I couldn't tell you if it was going to be a year or six months or two years. So in many respects, it's predicted and predictable. And, and so what we've seen now is the protection for infection go down for over 90% to 40 to 50%, according to Israel studies. And, and, and there's a side story there. It's always, you know, if you ever notice that all of our vaccine effectiveness studies come out of Israel and the mm -hmm. UK, mm -hmm. there's a problem there. We're not, we're not doing a good enough job measuring vaccine effectiveness in the US. And I don't know why we have the infrastructure to do it here. But so, and I think that's why the Health and Human Services last week came out with that recommendation because they thought the decline in protection against infection was the tip of the spear before we started to also see declines in hospitalizations. And and some of my colleagues have been very critical of, of that decision because they said, well, you know, if we're not seeing declines in hospitalizations, why are we doing this? Well, um, it, I th again, it's I think part of it is data collection. We're not we are not fully collecting all the breakthrough hospitalizations. You know, I have colleagues, you know, who run hospitals who say they've got 20 percent of their uh, hospitalized patients now are vaccinated, but we don't have confirmation of any of that. So I think we really need clarity. So I do think a third immunization is, is probably going to be warranted not only because of the breakthrough infections, but breakthrough hospitalizations. But I would have liked to have seen more data presented when, when, when that was announced. And then the other question I'm asked about is vaccine equity. You know, shouldn't we be using those doses for vaccinating Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia? And, and you know, there I actually have an article out that by the time this is out, will be out in the LA Times. You know that says, you know, sharing doses is important, but it's still going to have a modest impact because, you know, we went so heavy on the innovation for mRNA vaccines that nobody gave thought to the fact that there's a learning curve in terms of scaling up production. Mm. We just don't have a lot of mRNA vaccines, and yes, it's wrong that it only went to the wealthy countries. But the truth is, even if we were to share what we had. We need to, we need, we've got 3 million, 3 billion people in low and middle income countries. That's 6 billion doses. Where's that going to come from? And I've been arguing, you know, while we're learning in that learning curve about how to scale up and produce mRNA vaccines, let's get some others out there. So we've got a recombinant protein vaccine. That's a recombinant protein made in yeast, like the hepatitis B vaccine on alum together with a CPG oligonucleotide. It looks great. And there's no upper limit to the amount you can make. And, hmm. and you know, we're on our own in terms of private philanthropies and that kind of thing, working with countries. So we're getting calls from ministers, ministries of health, ministries of science from all over the world, from Africa, Asia, and Latin America, please help us. And now we're doing that and we're working with them, but we're just not getting a lot of support from the U.S. government. So I've been talking to the Biden administration, you know, rather than wring your hands that you're not doing enough to share doses, you know, help us, help us scale up production of this. And that's just, I've had a tough time convincing them. Again, you just really highlight all of the different layers of complexity <laughs> that surround all aspects of this pandemic. It really is. It, it does. Well, it's also fascinating, right? I mean, not only yeah. is the science fascinating, but the geopolitics is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And and when I moved to Houston 10 years ago to be part of Baylor and Texas Children's, I 
I've always wanted to write on this and I became a, I reinvented myself as a writer, which is not a great writer, but a good writer. <laughs> and I've uh, been, this is not preventing the next pandemic vaccine diplomacy in time of anti-science is my fourth book. And I love it. It's, uh, um, and I find it very meaningful and, and, and because the geopolitics of illness is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I just have a few more sort of uh, questions about the pandemic, and then uh, we're going to get you out of here because I have no doubt that you have other venues to uh, <laughs> to help educate their listeners as I well. Believe, I believe Jake Tapper is waiting. So. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's about time for annual influenza vaccines. Do we know if people can receive both their flu shot and the COVID vaccine at the same time? You know, the CEO of Pfizer said that he's going to work on trying to formu- co-formulate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we're going to need boosters of COVID every year, but I think for now, I haven't seen any um, efficacy or safety data of giving them both together. So I would probably wait a couple of weeks after the last dose before I get my flu vaccine. Okay. Uh, um, do, you, do you anticipate that we'll hear more about that as we get into the autumn? I hope so. I mean, flu vaccine's out now, I think, right? So it's out soon. So um, again, we don't get that you know, meaningful level of communication, you know, all the questions you're asking, right, should be sort of out there coming from our, our leadership of the of health and human services agencies. And it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, reading tea leaves or Kremlin watching, trying to, trying to uh, get that information. And, and I'm happy to do it. Um, uh, I, but, you know, it takes, I'm always worried that, uh, I'm not authoritative on, on everything and always worried about getting it wrong. Mm, absolutely. What about the, these folks that are talking about SARS-CoV-2 becoming endemic in our world? What does that mean? Well, I think what they're talking about is it continues to circulate like our upper respiratory, other upper respiratory coronaviruses. And yes, that I think it's possible, but I, you know, I also you know, say we don't have to necessarily concede yet. Let's let's still try to accelerate vaccinating the world, especially if we can get, you know, if we can get high levels of virus neutralizing antibody up there, I think it does halt asymptomatic infection as well. So uh, I'm still of, of the mindset, let's be more aggressive with vaccinating everybody. And, but again, with a high reproductive number like that, look at measles, right? With a it's got a reproductive number of 12 to 18. You got to get to 90, 95% vaccination coverage. We're probably going to need something like that as well. But it, the point is it is achievable, but there has to be that commitment, that political commitment. And certainly in some of the states in the U.S., that's not there. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up here, I just have a couple of more questions, and I'd like to shift gears, if I may, and, and just start by you know asking, you're very active on social media, despite <laughs> all of your other media appearances and, and writing books and everything else. Where can our listeners find you? Um, well, I do have a Twitter handle, at Peter Hotez. Um, and uh, yeah, social media, I always have mixed feelings about. I usually do it to get my papers out there. And, but what's happened is I've noticed is things I put out there, the journalists often read it and come and find me for follow-up. And so that, that is uh, interesting. I also have a, a bit of a website, peterhotez.org, one word, which, you know, has some of my writings and books and things. And, um, but uh, you know, this is, this is all part of the public engagement uh, process. And, 
I, th you know, I've always enjoyed it. It's become a little bit concerning now with all of the aggression um, that's out there now, especially the stuff from the political extremist groups on the right and the QAnon stuff. That's that. I mean, who, no one likes to get an email saying an army of patriots is going to hunt you down. And and I'm looking at this and I'm saying, well, why do you need an army of patriots? It's just me and Ann and Rachel and the cat. I would think one patriot is more than enough. You know, most will need two patriots, right? But you don't need a whole army of patriots. Well, I, I guess it depends. you get into some dark humor like that. It's um, but um, it is it is very concerning. Um, the anti the level of anti science aggression, mm -hmm. and it's one thing you know for an to have an anti vaccine movement. I think the other game changer is the targeting of scientists, and, and of course they go after Tony, you know Tony Fauci, and uh, but you know they go after me in a big way, and you know I even have you know the governor of Florida going after me on Fox News, and I'm thinking. What's going on? It's not even my state. You know, <laughs> going after scientists. I, I've that I've never seen before, um, and maybe some of the climate change guys, you know, are more familiar with it. But for biomedical scientists, that that I hadn't seen before, and and I, it's a dark moment in American history, and I hope it lifts uh, because that would be very concerning as well. Absolutely. And you are a, a very big target, unfortunately, because of all that you do. And so I'd like to ask if you'd mind sharing how you take breaks from everything. I can only imagine how stressful your daily schedule must seem. You seem to turn 24 hours into 36. Uh, so Yeah, no, thank, that's true. Um, well, fortunately, Anne, you know, puts up with it. So that's <laughs> that can't be easy. And we've been married now for almost 35 years, and she's still hanging in there with me. I, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, I think she's been supportive because she realizes that there's a gap. And, um, and you know, she was the one who reminded me, this is why I got my MD and PhD, right, to, to save the world. And if, <laughs> you know, and if, and I've been working on, I, you know, we were working mostly on parasitic disease vaccines about 10 years ago. We adopted a coronavirus vaccine program because they were orphaned. And, you know, here I am, an MD, PhD, been working on coronavirus for 10 years, and there's not that many that, that are willing to speak out. And so this is the time to, to do it. And I think the hardest part, though, for me has been the 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 aggression and and actually having to disentangle the anti-science, um, especially when you had last year around March, April, when you saw the disinformation campaign coming out of the White House. And because I've been going up against anti-vaccine groups for so many years, I'd not only become an expert in vaccines, but also anti-vaccines and anti-science disinformation. And so I was the, one of the first to call it out on the cable news channels, not because I'm so brilliant, just because I'd been going up against it for so many years. And that I would never forget the conversation I had with Anne. And I said, what do you do? You know, you're not supposed to talk about Republicans and, you know, start going after people in the West Wing. She said, well, you know, you don't want to be in a situation a year from now where so many Americans have died from COVID and you didn't do all you could to save lives. And that's what pushed me out to do that and been doing it ever since. And uh, I hope it all, I hope history treats me well because you, you just, you're, it's all, there's no roadmap here, right? You just, uh, it's all seat of the pants and, and uh, hope, hope what I'm doing is helping. Uh, well, you know, 
on behalf of our listeners, we appreciate all that you do. And um, it doesn't sound like you have time to get into the sourdough bread baking craze or anything like that, unfortunately. But <laughs> if I may ask one last question, when you finally get to take a break, and hopefully when the pandemic has started to resolve, and hopefully it's not that far in the future, where are you most looking forward to visiting and why? Well, for our 30th anniversary, um, Anne, Anne loves crashing waves. That That's her thing. So we went to the Oregon coast that I'd never been, and it's, it's so gorgeous. And so I wouldn't mind going to a place like that and seeing some crashing waves, maybe Ireland or, you know, or Scotland or, or some, something, or even, or even Western Canada or up in the Atlantic provinces, something, something like that, where there's a lot of crashing waves. That's the, that's the aspirational goal. I do, you know, I don't miss the travel on a regular basis. I'm usually in the UK at least once a year because I've got so many good U British colleagues and, and what I do is of great interest to British science. And so I do miss those visits as, as well. And so I think that's, that's something I'm looking forward to. Um, but, you know, I mean, we're very excited. You know, I think though, even though I'm exhausted, I'm, I'm finding this meaningful, right? If, you know, if, I think that's, and that's true for all of us, right? We want to feel like we're making a difference in the world. You know, people often ask me, say, Peter, are you happy? Or Dr. Hotes, are you happy? And I say, well, happy, happy is a, you know, when I was five years old and got a new toy, I was happy. <laughs> I don't even know that I seek happiness. What I seek is, is to feel like I'm in the mix and, and making a difference. And I think that's true of a lot of physicians and especially going into a field like allergy immunology, which is such an intellectually and intensive endeavor. You know, your, your goal is to, you know, do things that are meaningful and, and, you know, the allergist immunologists have made such a huge contribution uh, to this uh, pandemic. And you're all, in my view, you're all unsung heroes. Many of you are sung, but many of you are unsung as well. So thank you for all your great work. Well, right, right back at you, Dr. Hotez. Um, we really can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. And this was, I think it's going to be very helpful for all of our listeners. Before we depart, and, and please uh, pass along my regards to Mr. Tapper as well. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, that's it. I just think, you know, you know, everybody's working hard. Everyone's exhausted. Um, it's, these are still scary times. I thought we, and everyone is profoundly disappointed, right? I think we, many of us thought, including me, that we'd be in a better place had we fully vaccinated everybody. But this this time will get better as well. And um, it's just going to take a, a little bit longer. And, and your expertise on the immunology of COVID and vaccines is helping so many people. And uh, this is your time to make a difference, and that's what you're doing. Thank you again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.